Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Sean Askinosi. Sean is the founder of Askinosi Chocolate. Their business model has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and on Bloomberg, as well as numerous other media outlets. Sean was named by O, the Oprah Magazine, as one of 15 guys who are saving the world. He is a family brother at Assumption Abbey, a Trappist monastery near Ava, Missouri. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So we'll we'll start with the the kind of dramatic story in a way that uh, led from your kind of walking through your career path. You went from being a trial lawyer to a chocolate maker, and that's not an obvious segue. So it's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know many lawyers who are no longer lawyers, yes. but that's kind of a different story. But uh, so, uh, what brought you here? What brought you to to what you're doing now? The uh, the specific area that I specialized in was criminal law, and then within that, I sort of subspecialized in really serious felony cases. And I guess you could say that I built my reputation on the defense of murder cases. So a kind of sub sub specialty. And, um, you know, that is, um, it can be a tough gig and I loved it for a long, long time. And then when I stopped loving it, it was pretty, um, it was a pretty sudden, um, kind of awareness really just in my body, mind, and spirit that I couldn't do it anymore. So I, I was really desperate on the path to find something else. And that took, you know, five years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the same was true for me. I, I used to work in a corporate setting and my, that transition to being an entrepreneur was five years in the making too. So uh, it seems like it's a momentary decision, but there's a lot that goes behind that kind of shift. Yeah. And for me, you know, it wasn't clear uh, immediately to me even what was going on. I mean, I was so kind of out of touch with everything. All I was just really focused on the courtroom and preparing for the courtroom. And, and uh, you know, and, and it was the thing, and I'm sure you felt this way too, when you're in the job and during the time when you're really um, loving it and you feel like you're in the right place, it doesn't so much feel like work and but then it can be pretty harmful i think when it does begin to feel like work especially right. if it's a stressful job so right yeah absolutely so why chocolate what uh, i mean about of all the things you could have done other than what you were doing you know the the real honest answer to that question is i don't know um, and <laughs> I've become more confident over the years in giving that answer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you would have asked me, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago, I would have probably had an elaborate, um, but I, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a mystery to me because I didn't have a 
lifelong love of chocolate. Um, it wasn't always a dream of mine to have a chocolate factory. But the path, the path itself, that five-year journey um, was sort of unfolding in front of me as it happened. And it just so happened that at the end of that path was the beginning of something else. And it just happened to be chocolate. <laughs> well, it often happens that way. Things just kind of seem to, one thing leads to another and, <laughs> and then there you are. Yeah. Well, I know from your book that you were deeply wanting to explore your personal vocation. So can you tell us what that means to you? And, and then we can delve into the process a little bit because you, you do describe it in the, in the book, um, Really fully. I think the, the sort of um, most relatable and most understandable version of that is that it's another word for vocation. In fact, it would be also from the Latin, but is calling. And it's a, it's a calling that can be um, really, I think, cultivated internally. It can be part of, uh, it can be revealed, I believe, as part of our interior life. Um, it doesn't have to be as as uh, Thomas Merton and and uh, Parker Palmer have have said. It doesn't have to be this external audible voice from the clouds. Um, and so for me, that's what it is. It's um, it's a calling to a path, and I think that that um, we are um, in a place and age where we don't have to have one. And for me, I I had a calling and in my work as a lawyer for almost two decades. And now I have a different calling. And I, so that's how I interpret it. Hmm. Well, uh, there's one of the things you talk about in the, in the book, in terms of the, the process that you go through with people to find their calling is one of the steps is begin with your sorrow. And that one surprised me. I mean, the others were more, uh, kind of logical and made sense from uh, a lot of things other people are doing, but that one really stood out to me. So why, why that? Why is Soros? The, I think um, I would say at the outset that this particular um, method um, is the one thing I want to say is that it's not a prescription. And by that, I mean this speaks to a certain category of people. Uh, what I've described in the book and what we're talking about now, and it's specifically this part of it, having to do with heartbreak and sorrow. And so right now, um, I would say I'm speaking to those people in your audience who have experienced what it feels like to be heartbroken. And on this journey and on this path and searching and seeking for, am I in the right place? How do I reposition myself in the right place? Or how do I find the next place? If you, not you, but if the, the folks listening haven't experienced heartbreak and are on this path, then that's another hour conversation that we need to have <laughs> about why you are however old you are and you, you can literally tell us that you have not uh, experienced heartbreak. That's a whole right. issue. But right. so I, I, um, I love this, um, this idea of what we can find from the exploration of our heartbreak and sorrow. 
And I talk a lot in the book about poet philosopher Khalil Gibran, who says that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that. I've experienced it personally. And um, I believe that it really is one of those things that holds the key to um, a sort of brighter illumination of the path in front of us. And so I ask people to, well, I, I ask them directly, where does it hurt? Tell me, wh- where does it hurt? And I think that the, I think the conversation that follows that kind of question can really be helpful. And the reason why I think it's important to, to consider sorrow and heartbreak is because if we can put ourselves in the position of serving someone else or another group of people that is out of the very spot in our own broken heart, then we are, um, we're, we're taking great leaps and strides to seeing joy in our own life. Not be, so it's not a, it's, it's not transactional. Like I think I'm going to go serve this person out of the sorrow in my own broken heart so that I can experience joy. It's a paradox. It's a mystery. And so I think that this exploration of sorrow is really um, a kind of bridge uh, that will, that can very likely lead us to what is the next calling in our life. Well, and there's a real vulnerability in that. And I mean, to take this out of the abstract and into the particular, in your case, you had a a terrible, tragic thing happen as a teenager, and that's really affected you in in many different ways. To this day. Yeah. To this very day. Um, My dad died of lung cancer when I was 14, and I was like 12 when he was diagnosed. And this was before hospice and I helped take care of him and give him pain shots and things. And he was a lawyer too. And, and, uh, and, you know, he just deteriorated right in front of me all the while the church people came over and laid hands on him and spoke in tongues and said he was going to be healed and told me to never speak with him about death because if I did, then it would be a sign of doubt and he wouldn't be healed. So we didn't. And then, the cancer sp- kept spreading and I kept thinking, well, God, if you're going to do something, you need to kind of hurry up. And, and it just kept getting worse. And then the cancer went to his brain and he, he had a stroke and I didn't think he was going to die. And I was with him and it was a desperate moment of literally begging God out loud, not to let this happen. And he died. So I spent 25 years after that, just accomplishing things, winning things, making money, thinking I could kind of prove um, I could prove that I didn't need God in order to live a life. And um, so then um, after the conclusion of a a particularly emotional murder trial, I thought, you know, I need to really kind of explore the grief in my life. And so really, gosh, right after that, I I co-founded a grief center for kids called Lost and Found for kids and families. And uh, it's been going, that thing's been going on now for almost 20 years. And I'm still very involved in that organization. In fact, I was there last night 
as a volunteer facilitator in a teen group. We have 17 teenagers whose parents or siblings have died and it's all free. And um, so, I mean, it's, so it literally is, um, it, it's a part of my life, like I said, to this day, up to last night. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> yeah, thank you for sharing that, Sean. And you, you're very vulnerable about it in your book as well. And it really, it really brings home the, uh, the, the points that you're making, the, the aspects of your business as well, that you're choosing to live out because of those experiences. And there are so many ways that your business contributes. And could you talk about that, about the ways that you're, you're having impact uh, with your, with the community, with your supplier, cocoa bean suppliers, and, and why have you chosen to do that? The, when we started, I wanted to work directly with farmers and we call it direct trade. And I sort of patterned it after some mentors I had at Intelligentsia Coffee in Chicago. And that, so the idea is for us to remove the middlemen and women, if we can, where we can from the supply chain. So I'll help farmers open bank accounts. I wire money directly into their accounts. We help teach them become exporters so they can, uh, again, reduce um, portions of the supply chain at origin. Uh, and this has been going on now for 12 years. And we, I, I literally go to farms in Ecuador, Amazon, Tanzania, Philippines every year. And uh, in a few weeks, I'll take my 42nd origin trip. And it's I was, wow. it was just, just a few minutes ago um, trying to plan out my trip to the Amazon. And um, so so that that is something where we believe that that has a direct impact on the quality of the chocolate um, that we make and sell um, because I, I go and I can see it. I can make sure it's met our specification. And then we're also importers, which is very uncommon. And so I literally see the container of cocoa beans before it goes and then when it ends up at my warehouse. And so that that's very important. The other thing we do is we share profits with farmers and we, we publish that on our website in a very simple spreadsheet that lists out every bean buy we've made for the last 12 years and what we paid for it, how it compares to the world market price, the fair trade price, and most importantly, how it compares to what's called the farm gate price. And so we pay farmers a lot more than they would otherwise receive at farm gate. And um, we translate our financials into their language. So when I'm there, they can see how we calculate profit share so, for example, this summer when I'm in Tanzania, our financials will be in Swahili. And um, so that's, that is one thing. The why, you ask, well, why, why that? And the, um, the part of our vocation that relates to farmers comes um, from my, um, you know, my um, honor and appreciation of my grandparents who were very simple people. They were farmers here in Southwest Missouri, not highly educated, um, lived on the same farm for over 65 years, went to the same church and helped their neighbors. And they were good, honest, sweet, kind people. And uh, so when they were alive, unfortunately, I didn't really express my appreciation for the time. And I spent many, many days and weeks on their farm growing up because it was close to my house. And so now when I'm with farmers in, you know, the Amazon in a few weeks, I will not only be honoring my grandparents' 
but I, in some sense, I feel like I'm with my grandparents. It's part of the reason I travel to the place is I, I feel connected to my grandparents when I'm with these farmers in other countries. And so it's a deep um, rooted part of the vocation of our company to work directly with farmers. And then students is another, uh, I would say, primary focus of our business. So when we started the chocolate factory, we're in a blighted part of our community. And as, as, as every major community has a part of their community that's undergoing revitalization. And there are many poor people living near our factory. And when, when I started, there was a homeless shelter down the block with 80 kids in it. And so the idea was to start this program called Chocolate University and engage the kids of our neighborhood. So we've been in the fifth grade um, school a couple of blocks from the factory since we started. And it's just a back and forth relationship with the kids. And then we have a middle school program. We have a summer school program and a high school program that's a very uh, immersive international business experience where these it's very competitive. The kids here and around my area, around Springfield, compete to be part of this high school program. And we select 15 kids. Half of them are full scholarship. We raise the money. They spend a week on the Drury University campus and then um, they learn a little Swahili and some Tanzania culture. And then they meet me at the airport and we take them to Tanzania. And it's a transformative wow. experience for them. And I've sure. been doing that since 2010. And um, so these are some of the, we have a school lunch program in Tanzania and the Philippines. We've provided over a million school lunches to malnourished kids since we started. All sustainable, uh, no donations for that program. Um, and then, and the, why, the why the students is because um, when I was in the, uh, fifth and sixth grade, I had the same teacher. His name was Mr. Elmore. And that was what, when my dad was sick. And this teacher, Mr. Elmore, wrote notes on my homework papers that were just nice and kind and encouraging. And I never forgot that. And so I think the vocation to work with students really was born from the kindness of that teacher. And I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to what it means to have a teacher that's kind and how that really impacts our lives. And he impacted my life. I, and I still am in touch with him and had lunch with him probably three <laughs> weeks ago. Oh, and, that's great. And uh, I'm 58. So that was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, he really does um, stay in the forefront of my mind when I'm working with these students. And the thing is working with students and working with farmers is um, completely and totally interrelated to our um, making and selling chocolate um, such that we can't really separate those vocations that I'm describing from making chocolate. It's all the same thing. It's all, it's all part of the day here. Mm. Well, and, and that's, what's so amazing about it. It's so integrated and it's, uh, I think that's crucially important to embed that kind of thing into every aspect of the business. And uh, that's how, that's how you're living it out in so many different ways. So I think, I think, um, and I was just at a conference myself in Washington, DC, and there were some re representatives and CEOs of really large corporations. And I think one of the problems with this area that we're talking about 
and one of our, if I could say, an impediment to this interrelationship in really large corporations is that the corporate social responsibility departments are often siloed from the rest of the company. And I think there are obviously companies who are making a, a big, big change in this area. But, you know, those CSR departments were in the 60s formed, it was just lawyers. Then they were there to, to mitigate risk. Right. Now they've become a philanthropy department and it just doesn't work. And so I think one of the keys to the true um, transformation of capitalism is the sort of willingness to let this play out, even if it's a little bit messy, so that these departments are not siloed and separated from each other. Mm. Yeah, um, I agree. I think they've largely become sort of philanthropic arms and philanthropy and the integration of impact are really two different things. I mean, they're, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, one of the things that you uh, talk about in the book is reverse scaling. And you say it's a practice, not a pace. So tell us, Tell us about what that means to you and how do you, how do you come to think of things in this way? The, it's kind of um, the precursor or the preface to this idea of reverse scale is that most of us are conditioned to think that scale is good. We must scale. Right. Um, you know, chambers of commerce want us to do it because it means jobs and Investors want us to do it so they can get a nice return and get out. And um, our friends think that we'll be rich if our things, if whatever <laughs> scales. And so right. it's just, it's a thing. Then when you combine that with um, what I talk about in chapter three of the book, which is how much is enough? How, how, just right. what, what is enough? What is sufficient? We've, we've also been conditioned to believe that the health of our economy and the health of the world is based on consumption. And so everything is connected to GDP. And I'm asking, can we, can we step back from that just for a minute, take a deep breath and ask, why are we scaling? Do we need to scale? And can we ask some basic simple questions about how much is enough? How much salary do I need? How much gross revenue does my company need? Um, how many likes do we need on Instagram? And you know, if we can just ask some questions, then maybe when it comes to this idea of scale, we can, we can sort of reposition the worth of the idea, meaning that it, it may not impact as many people, but that will not detract from its value, even if it helps one person or, or just me. If it helps me transform, then can this idea still have worth? And I believe the answer is very definitely yes. And so that's what I mean by reverse scale and the reason why it's a practice and not kind of a destination is because I think entrepreneurs who, who um, fall victim to this siren song of scale, you know, scale, we're over here. And it's, um, we, we, we are, we are hard driving everything's fast paced. We're on the move. And if we're not careful, we will lose sight of the thing that drew us to our business in the first place. Mm -hmm. And we, we become separated from it. So I think that we, 
we need to stay tethered to the notion that brought us here to begin with. We know why. We know the things that drew us here. We can articulate them. And if we keep them front and center, then we'll, we'll be reminded of that, you know, because we know what to look for. We know, we know what the road signs are for, the, for all of the reasons that drew us here. So if we can just be continually reminded of that, then there's, there's a less likelihood that we'll step away from it and lose it. And so that's why I, I think it's, it truly is a practice. I think it's a discipline to sort of um, swim against the culture and trend that is asking us to grow at all cost. And the, the final reason why I think this is important is that I believe there's a greater likelihood of sustainable transformation for me, my, my own self, my heart, if I can stay connected to these things, if I can stay connected to farmers and students and the quality of our product, even if it means I'm going to perhaps make less money, um, am I willing to make some sacrifices in order to stay true to why I was drawn here to begin with? And if the answer is yes, I think I'm going to have a more joyful life um, for that. Yeah, and that is so often not the goal. And there's so much focus on grow, 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 and it more and more profit. And I, I think, too, there's a bit of a conundrum for entrepreneurs that are focused on both profit and impact, where you can say to yourself, well, if I scale back, if I, if I don't grow as quickly as I potentially could, that's going to mean less impact as well, which mm -hmm. can kind of bring in concerns about guilt and, mm -hmm. and what am I really doing in the world? And, and uh, I, I know that's something you've bumped up against. You talk about it in the book. And can you share with us what your current thoughts are around that and how you've dealt with the, the, the difficult decision to not grow as quickly because uh, even though it means less impact? I think you have posed um, an outstanding question. I think this is the sort of, this is kind of the mountaintop of where really tough decisions are made and the results can be dramatic. And I think that when we tell ourselves, well, we better do this thing because if we don't do this thing, then we won't be able to have as much impact as we had hoped for. Mm -hmm. If we, if we aren't careful with that, then, then we'll end up in a really bad place. And the reason why I say that is because the voice in our head <laughs> with these questions is us. And it's our own voice and it's a trick. It's a trick because, and we know this, we, we know that people can get burned out. We know that people can become hugely disappointed and heartbroken over, um, over the answers to this question and they can become tired. And so we have an obligation to the preservation of ourselves, our body, mind, and spirit. We have an obligation to the preservation of our companies, our families, um, and we also need to have the humility to understand that we aren't the only people who can do these things. And we, we, um, we have to have 
I believe we have to have that humility in order to preserve these things that we're talking about, to preserve ourselves. And um, I just think it's, it is a, um, you know, it really is a sort of vortex that we need to be careful that we're not caught in. And uh, before you know it, and, and, you know, the thing of it is, it's one thing to say, oh, well, I need to do this project and I need to grow because it's more money for me and I'm going to be able to get that Ferrari that I'm hoping to get. And which that's perfectly, that's, that's fine. All right. But it's not as, um, it's, it's not as tricky, if I could say, because when it's our own voice, as you said, sort of guilting us into, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to, you know, feed these children or, or buy these, you know, things, these books for kids or whatever, then that, that is, um, that I think is even more dangerous. Um, I mean, Mother Teresa talked about this. A, a lot of the spiritual reading I do talks about, talk about this. And um, there are many people in the NGO and the nonprofit world who suffer from this. And yeah. it's, it's, it's truly dangerous, I think. Well, and it's a bit of a, I mean, taken to us, it's, it's extreme. It's a bit of a savior complex where I am the one. Yes. I am the one who can do this and no one else can. And, and therefore, you're not stepping into that is, is a bit of an ego thing. Right. And you're not serving your vocation. You're not serving your calling. Yeah. Uh, truly, um, by having that kind of complex, indeed. Yeah. Well, you're such a mission-driven company, and uh, when you bring people into the company, is the mission something that you really want people to have bought into, or how, or do you include and embrace people in your company that may have different opinions about what you should be doing, even on the leadership team? Mm -hmm. In the beginning, when, when we very, I mean, we only have 17 full-time people, so we're tiny, but, um, but in the beginning, I remember thinking in the first few years when people didn't all agree with me about this mission um, work that we do, um, I was really offended and I got kind of defensive and, and uh, over the years, I've really learned to soften into that in such a way that now I really encourage, um, we want people here who find their place here for themselves. And if it, if so, if it so happens that they're attracted to some of the programs that we work on with students and how we treat farmers, then they can sort of, um, feel a connection to that. Or maybe it's just, they feel a really strong connection to the craft of making chocolate and roasting cocoa beans and making new products. And that is their focus and that's their calling. That's, that's where they believe they're supposed to be. I'm totally okay with that. In fact, I think it makes for a better company, even a tiny one like ours, if there's not just this lockstep, you know, automatomic, um, response to the work that we do beyond making chocolate. It all fits together. And I think it's kind of nice um, to hear um, other views. And I, I think it makes for a better company. Um, and ultimately, I think, it I think it makes for better chocolate. And so what we try to say is not that there's going to be some kind of balance, but that there will be a harmony with it. And 
what that means is, is that we can, we can have these other views, we can weave them in, we can be respectful of each other, and we'll, you know, make the best decision that we can and that's in front of us and move forward. But um, we don't really, there's not like a, I mean, the onboarding process for new employees isn't a kind of situation where we say, okay, here's how we make chocolate and then here's how we serve people. It's all mixed up together. It's all the same recipe. And so we want people who are coming on board to really um, sense it. So it takes a little bit of time. And of course, a lot of the people who are here have read about us beforehand. So they have some familiarity with the work that we do around the world and the work we do here in Springfield. And so it's often now these days why people want to come work here, but not, but not always the only reason. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so refreshing to hear your perspective on that because there's so much written about, you know, hire for alignment with the mission and people have to buy in right from the beginning or you shouldn't hire them. And, and I really like your very reasonable approach that there are aspects of the business that people are going to connect with more than others. And, rather than trying to create this una environment mm -hmm. where everyone has the same view, uh, you're really uh, opening up to a kind of diversity that maybe other companies don't. Well, thank you for recognizing that. I mean, and I have to say, I mean, as a manager, sometimes that's not the easiest thing in the world, um, <laughs> okay. but I think, but I, but I think I like it. I, I like it. And I think it's important and, and um, I, th I also think it, it, it makes for um, greater longevity uh, for people who come here who are doing good work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, this kind of ties in with the whole idea of leadership. And I know that you've had various mentors. Um, I, I know you wrote an article a while ago about mentors versus elders in your life. How have you cultivated your, your own leadership? You mean how have, I, how have I connected with my mentors or? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the question's really a, a larger one of, of uh, you're a leader in your company. You're uh, the ultimate decision maker, I guess, in a lot, of, a lot of situations and certainly involved in leading people within the company. And I wonder how did you come to the, the style of leadership that you're practicing now? I think... Um, that's a really good question. Um, and I'm kind of a little bit chuckling because it's a family business And my daughter, Lauren, who's my co-author in the book and she's our chief marketing officer is she's been with me in this thing since she was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I've really come to rely upon her, um, a lot over the years and she is a leader and, there are often things that have to do with marketing or just anything to do with marketing. And, and I really defer to her a lot. And she also, I, th I think she has a, in some ways a greater sensitivity um, to just sort of a natural leadership style than I do. I think sometimes I have to be careful because while I, yes, I've left the courtroom, sometimes you can't, take the courtroom out of me. And so <laughs> that's a nice way of saying that, you know, I mean, I spent 20 years 
making a living cross-examining people. So I have to be really careful to, to not do that. And to, and I also think that now 12 years on uh, in the, in this company that um, I'm at a place where, and I recognize this, that I, I have a lot more to learn about managing and leading at this level. And so I'm sure that in your coaching practice, you deal with founders and entrepreneurs every day who have come to some kind of awareness that maybe they started the company and they founded it, and, but now they need help um, retooling and gaining greater um, skills and understanding about how to lead people at the next level of the company. And so that's something that I'm working on right now. And, um, but, but in, in answer to your question in a broader sense, I think one of the things that really guides me, um, and is, I would say this aspirationally, because I don't want it to sound like I, I, I know it all about this, but I've been really involved with the Trappist Monastery near my house. It's in the Mark Twain National Forest and it's called Assumption Abbey. And I've been going on retreats there for 20 years and I've been a family brother there for five years. And um, as you know, from looking at the book, I have a rule of life. And, and so I'm hopeful that my decision-making and my style is born out of prayer and from um, really true heartfelt consideration about what is the best thing, not just for me, but for everyone involved. And um, I'm, as I said, I'm not perfect at it. But that's the genesis of it. And I, even to the point of looking at how um, Benedictine monks are governed by the rule of Benedict all over the world, and it's a very old management document uh, that's still in existence. And so I take some of, some of the things that I do from that. Uh, for example, wanting to have a peaceful workflow. We almost never have overtime here, and not because I don't want to pay it, but I just want I, – I, it's an important thing for me even in the fourth quarter, which is busy for us to just have a peaceful workflow. So people can have, you know, a life outside of chocolate. Well, and that's uh, the ideal is to kind of keep uh, resources and demand in balance and Mm -hmm. manage accordingly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, the, uh, I know that your spiritual aspects of your life, which you just referred to have been really important in guiding your decisions and, um, one of the things that you also talk about is um, taking care of your workplace culture as if it is a treasure. And I loved reading that because I think culture often gets shunted off to the side, partly because people don't quite know what to do in order to build the culture they want, but also it, it can uh, just making progress and having a lot going on in the business can distract you from that. Can you talk about why, why is culture that important to you and, and what ways have you consciously nurtured it? Culture is important because we, we're, we hope that the people that we are working with here at the company um, are, are experiencing their own personal gratification, satisfaction in the work that they do that um, their work is meaningful and that they are um, 
that they're at a place where they can experience some kind of um, joy in the day. And we work, you know, we spend a lot of hours at work, supposedly on average 80,000 hours in our careers. Um, and when you look at that and combine it with what Gallup says, that two thirds of the American workforce are disengaged, 55% of executives aren't engaged at work, that's a lot. So really even just small things can make a big, big difference. And it isn't as if every day is going to be perfect, but I think it really begins with an attitude of connection and valuing each individual person and doing what we can, even though we're small, to recognize people for their contribution and to just nurture that. And so that can mean anything from me walking through the factory, which I'll do here in a few minutes after we hang up and just start at one end of the factory and make my way all the way through. And just, it could just be a little small talk and I'll notice what people are doing and ask them a question about it. Or they'll ask me about some trip I've just been on. And so I think that is a sort of informal kind of Gemba walk, you know, that people read about all the time, but it's, it's, we're small enough that I can do that informally. Um, and then, you know, we also in a broader sense are trying to, with the money that we have, which isn't a lot, but we're trying to have um, policies that recognize the hardships in people's lives. And so, you know, we have not just maternity leave, but we have paternity leave. We have bereavement leave. Um, for people who are experiencing grief in their lives. Um, and these are just um, the things that we can do. Um, we take time off. We have um, lunches together. Uh, we go on field trips together. And these are all really important. And um, as I said, and as you pointed out, and I love that word, it's not a uniculture but um, it's just recognizing the value that each of us bring to the day. And uh, it's, it's a very, it's very important to me, even to the point of turning away business. If we think in, in some cases that taking on a new um, project will have a significant disruption of our workflow, then we won't do it. We won't do it. Well, it's recognizing all everyone's humanity. Right. and lives outside of work and um yeah so it's really great to hear all the aspects that you've brought into play well sean the way i always wrap up these interviews is with a rapid round of three questions about impact are you are you game i'm game <laughs> okay great so the first one is what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact the biggest thing that i've learned is about having impact is to not wait and not, and not wait for everything to be perfect before beginning to try to make an impact. So the biggest thing I've learned is roll up your sleeves, start in. Won't be perfect, but at least we're making an effort. That's great. Well, the second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? The, the biggest thing I think that I've done is I've cultivated... I've tried to cultivate a prayer and meditation life um, that begins my day. And I think that that 
um, centering practice has had the biggest impact long-term um, in my life. And um, so, yeah, I think that. Well, and the last question is, what's one insider piece of advice you'd, you'd share with another business owner who's saying, I want to have more impact. I want to make more of a contribution. I think the, the best piece of advice that I would give and that I have given um, people is to not, um, is to take a process, to take a process um, inside your company to identify what the collective calling is of the company or the leadership team or you, the entrepreneur and the owner, and um, not to just focus on the shiny object to your periphery but really take the time to search the depths of what the possible vocation and calling could be for your company. So that is a process and it's something that, as you know, I kind of outline in the book, but um, anybody can do this. That's my thing. Look, we're just 16 people and 17 full-time people. And so, I mean, there really, there really are not, there are no excuses, not cash flow, not waiting, not, I don't have enough people. You can do it. Anybody can do it. Well, that's, uh, it's great to hear. And it's, it's inspiring. I think, uh, Sean, thank you so much for everything you've shared today. I'm so impressed with how infused impact is throughout your company and the ways that you've done that. And, and really heeded the call to make that kind of contribution while keeping your business profitable. It's, uh, it's been wonderful to hear about. And thank you for sharing the, the inner story of that. Well, thank you for your great questions and for allowing me the opportunity to have this conversation with you. I, I really, really appreciate it. Well, it's been my pleasure. Well, Sean, how do people get in touch with you if they want to reach you? Well, the best way is um, askanosi.com if they want to just look at what we're doing. If people want to read any of the little blog posts that I have, then it's seanaskenosi.com. But if people want to email me, which I am open to for sure, it's hello at seanaskenosi.com. And I answer those emails and hopefully enter into a dialogue with people who are maybe searching on this path themselves. Hmm. That's great. Well, thank you, Sean, for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at workalchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes, subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.